0: Welcome to the Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart Podcast, where healthcare meets business with your host, me, Dr. Karen Litzy. And just as a reminder, the information in this podcast is for entertainment purposes only and is not to be used as personalized medical advice. Enjoy the show. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart Podcast, and happy new year. Uh, myself, and everyone here on the team of Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart wish you all a very happy and healthy new year. And we've got a lot of great interviews coming up for this year that I'm actually really excited about today being one of those interviews. So today I'm really happy to have on the program Joe Friel. He is one of the best known triathlon coaches in the world and the author of several books on the sport, including the Triathlete's Training Bible, which has a new edition available this month. So if you go down into the show notes for whatever uh, platform you're listening on, one click will take you to the new edition of the Triathlete's Training Bible by Joe Friel. Um, And it just looks absolutely amazing. Joe has been in the biz for decades. He is a trusted source in the triathlon world and a trusted coach. And today we are talking about how to be a triathlete when you're over 50. Things are different. Trust me. Um, I'm not there yet, but I'm not far away. So a big thanks to Joe for coming on and sharing all of his decades of knowledge on triathlete coaching. Hey, Joe, welcome to the Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart podcast. I'm excited to have you on to talk about triathlons and training, especially if you're over a certain age. So welcome to the podcast. I'm happy to have you on.
1: Hi, Karen. Glad to be here. Thank you for inviting me.
0: Of course. And now, before we get into training over, let's say, 50, um, can you let the listeners know how you got into triathlon training and competitions for like i said before we went on the air i read you've been doing this since 1980 i don't want to out your age or anything but it's been a while so can you tell us how you got into it
1: well it goes back a long ways as you've just alluded to i i was in the uh, 1950s i was in um junior high and I took I, I became a runner and, f- and I found I enjoyed it I was on the track team in junior high school went on to high school was on the track team went to college it's on the track team graduated from college in the uh, mid-60s and I was still very enthusiastic about running so I still kept it up uh, every place I went in fact I was in Vietnam during the war and I was running while I was there uh, which wasn't the most fun place to run, but it worked out okay. I got back and uh, then I uh, I kept on running, but by about 19, I thought I was a teacher. I was a high school teacher and I was a track coach. So I was working with the high school students and about 1980, 1979, 1980, I decided it was time to move on from teaching, but I really wasn't sure what I wanted to do. And so I had this brainstorm. Uh, which my wife thankfully now went along with, which was I would open a running store in the town I lived in this. Now you have to remember 1980. There were, there were only probably only four running stores in the entire United States in 1980. If you wanted to buy, if you wanted to buy running equipment, you went to a general sporting goods store where they sold basketballs and footballs and all sorts of stuff. But they also had running shoes, which weren't very good in those days. So I, I opened the running store, which is the fifth running store in the U.S. back in 1980. Uh, the store did very, very well. Uh, I wound up having like 13 employees. Two of those employees were triathletes. That's for all runners. And uh, those two uh, triathletes suggested I give triathlon a try. And so I went along with them. I said, OK, I'll, I'll give it a try. I signed up for a local race did it, and fell in love with the sport immediately. I just had a great time. That was 1983, so now I'm, I'm three years into my, my running store. So that year, after the triathlon, I, I bought the bike store next to my running store, took out the wall between them, and had the first triathlon store probably in the world. I've never heard of anybody else beating me to that in 1983. And pretty much the rest is history after that, so it, it really got me started on, on the sport Um Really, in nineteen eighty-three.
0: And how long have you been coaching triathlon, uh, elite amateur athletes?
1: Well, I started coaching runners in nineteen eighty. Uh, my running store. I, I have a master's in exercise science, and so I was getting people coming in all the time asking for how to train for a ten k or a marathon or whatever it was that they were going to do. And uh, I enjoyed doing that. And the next thing I knew, I had. And once I had the old triathlon store, I had triathletes coming in asking the same questions. So I was telling them how to train, and uh, I was doing all this for free. I didn't charge anybody anything. They would come into my running store and they'd buy shoes from me or bikes and all that kind of stuff. But finally, about 1986, I decided that I was just I was overwhelmed with people coming in the store asking for free advice. So I was going to start charging. So I figured, well, I'll just charge him $5. Surely nobody will pay $5 to find out how to, how to train for a triathlon. And it did just the opposite. I had more people coming to me when I started charging $5. So my fee kept going up. And I realized by, by the next year, I was making more money off of coaching people in my store than I was off of the store itself. Uh, retail is a hard place to make to make a living. Yeah. And so the coaching was working a lot better. So in 1987, I sold the store and started coaching. And, uh, that's what I've been doing really pretty much ever since then.
0: That's, I love that story. That's kind of amazing. What a trailblazer. And where, where were you in, where were you living at the time that all this was happening and you had all these runners and triathletes coming to you?
1: I was in a small town, Northern Colorado called Collins and oh Colorado sure. Colorado State University is right across the street from my from my running store, mm-hmm. which later became the triathlon store. And it's a very active city. As most of the cities in Colorado are, very active.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh there was only one other two other running stores in the state besides mine. They came on much later than mine. And so uh one was in Boulder and the other was in uh was in Colorado Springs. And so we were the, we were the running stores in Colorado. And so we attracted everybody that wanted to talk about running or triathlon came to one of our stores and we were pretty much spread out. So I got mostly Northern Colorado people coming to see me from all over the state and Southern Wyoming also. So it worked out to be really uh, a good place to be at a good time also.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Right place, right time. That's, that's part of the magic, right?
1: That's right.
0: That's pretty amazing. Um, And gosh in in the 1980s it's like i don't i mean i was i was like a, a young kid at the time um but i it's like i don't remember like my parents or friends of parents like being into running i grew up in pennsylvania um it just it wasn't like a big thing then at least that i can remember but i wasn't in such i wasn't out in colorado where like you said it really is super active and, and continues to be to this day um and so after coaching for decades and decades i'm sure people of all ages um now we have uh baby boomers getting older we've got gen xers who are running into their 50s some literally um but how does training, let's say over 40 or over 50, differ from when you're a little bit younger? What are things that older folks need to to be aware of when they're training for triathlons or marathons or halves?
1: Uh, sure. It's a good question. Uh, in fact, I wrote a book about that called Fast After 50. And the idea of the book is to kind of give people an idea of what to expect as they got older and how they probably should mo- modify their, their training plans for whatever events they they like to do. So it was, it was for cyclists and runners and triathletes, and really rowers, anybody that, that was over the age of 50 that did endurance sports. And the bottom line was a couple of things. Number one was you can expect things to change. You're not gonna be 30 years old anymore it's now different, and if you haven't realized this yet, it, you're you're in for a rude awakening. Uh, what happens at about age thirty five? Your aerobic capacity starts declining. Aerobic capacity is how much oxygen you can process to to produce energy. So the more oxygen you can produce, the faster you go, and the more uh, the more training you can do at a higher level, and that begins to change about age thirty five. It starts going down a little bit. Not a lot at first, but it starts going down. And if if you're really, if you're really active after the age of 35, you can expect it to drop something like about um seven to eight percent per decade is how much it'll go down. If you're not active at all, if you've not been exercising, you just basically watch TV or whatever it is you go to work and that sort of thing, you can expect double that, more like 15, 16 percent. Per decade per, is the per loss decade. of the Per decade. So that means for the person who's not active, they have a hard time. By the time they're 50, they have a hard time going for a brisk walk because their VO2 max has been going down now for 15 years at the rate of about 15% per year. So that's like 22% loss of aerobic capacity by the time they go from 35 to 50 so that that that's a big change and become very aware of it it's much more difficult at that stage to get started It's much easier if you started out at a younger age whatever that age may be it's never too late by the way you can be you know if, you, if you're just now 50 and decide to start that's great you'll get better you'll slow down the VO2 max loss aerobic capacity will stay stay with you more than the 7% per decade sort of thing as opposed to twice that if you don't exercise at all this, this VO2 max, aerobic capacity thing, is really important to your, to your well-being. It's not just can you go out and go for a brisk walk. It also has a, uh, has been shown to have a very tight relationship to your longevity. How long you're going to live is defined in part by your aerobic capacity. So if it's going down at 15% per decade, that's 1.5% per year, you can expect over the course of a few decades that your VO2 max is going to get really low. When it gets down to something like about 20, which is a really low number, yeah. when it gets down to about 20, you're having a hard time walking. That's difficult. By five, by, the, by the time it's at 15, you're in a wheelchair. You really can't move around very much at all on your own. So there's lots of things happening here. Your, your body is going through lots of changes over time, but the key is you really want to maintain your aerobic capacity, this ability to, to, to use oxygen for fuel, and that's the key to exercising. That's that's the key to longevity. Really, if you come right down to it, you'll live longer if you can slow down the loss of longevity. That, that doesn't rule out other bugs that might, you may wind up infecting your body. Right. That's entirely outside of this realm. But if, you, if everything else remains the same and VO2 max is changing and you can slow that VO2 max down, the rate of change down, going to live much longer and have a much healthier more aerobic more more enjoyable life
0: right so it's it sounds like it's even beyond okay you'll live longer but you'll live longer better
1: you'll have much more quality of life yeah quantity probably will be greater it's hard to predict that because there's just a lot of variables. Too many variables
0: yeah yeah
1: but the the quality of your life will be much better um give you an example i had a friend recently who uh, uh, held the the were the national record, the world record for the Ironman course for age seventy five? Amazing! And he done it in thirteen hours and thirty minutes, something like that, if I recall right, which is really very very fast, especially for yeah. somebody who's seventy five years old. Um, he continued to exercise. Very close friend of mine. I stayed in touch with him. He died about two months ago at age ninety three. Ninety three now. 18 years after he set the course record, the day he died, he did a run on the treadmill and he rode his bike and he had a, he had a stroke that day and passed away. Hmm. It was a great loss that he was a great person, many, many ways, but he was remarkable as an individual in terms of being athletic and dedicated to his performance. I happened to interview him two weeks before his death just to talk about him. So I can do, write a piece about him on my website, my blog, because he's, He's been a friend of mine for years and just a a great guy in every way, shape, and form. He was also a coach, by the way. He was still coaching in his 90s, still coaching younger athletes. So that's the sort of thing that can happen. You You can have a long life and be extremely active, as he was, right up until the day he died. He was a very, very active individual. And I can tell you so many stories like that of people who have been active their entire lives beyond the point where we think people really ought to be even doing things like that. We suspect right. people shouldn't do things like that when they get to 93 years of age, but he was dedicated to it. So that that's just the way people are sometimes who get really involved in a sport like triathlon or running or cycling or whatever it may be.
0: Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. And so, you know, aside from an uh, VO2 VO two max uh, decreasing less as we get older, um, what other things things can we expect to change when you're over 50 and, and you're, you're training or you want to train?
1: Yeah, there's a couple of biggies that also happen. One of them is you begin to lose muscle mass. Uh, that's is seen quite commonly in people as they get into their late fifties and sixties, By the time in their seventies, typically people are, uh, don't have much of the way of muscle mass anymore at all. And that has a lot to do with again with a lot with, with um h- how much quality of life you have as you get older. Mm-hmm. So what I suggest people do, if they haven't started yet, is start lifting weights. It doesn't have to be heavy weights. You don't have to go to the gym. You can use body weight. You can do squats. Just sit down on a chair and stand up. Sit down on the chair, and yep. stand up, sit down on the chair, and stand up. Just do squats, do push-ups. Do something to keep moving, to using your muscles. And what will happen is you'll, you'll stop losing the muscles at the rate at which you were using it prior to this episode where you started exercising, started doing some, some exercise. That's one thing that will happen, which is very common. And we see it. If you run into somebody who's in their, typically in their 80s or, or older, you typically see a very uh, skeletal type person. There's not much muscle mass left. Um, there just isn't much there because they've just not really used those muscles for decades. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's that's the second thing that needs to be taken care of. The third thing is bone health. Um, bone health is a critical one for the aging athlete. Um, when you're an aging athlete, when you're an athlete, you're going to fall at some time. You're going to ride your bike and fall down. Um, it happens to people all ages. I mm-hmm. uh, don't care how good a cyclist you are you're going to take a fall. Every every cyclist falls. When you do, there's a a high, very high risk that you're going to break a bone. The risk increases dramatically as you get older. You get into your 60s, 70s, 80s, you fall and break a bone, which which is what will happen very easily at those ages. The bones become very porous as as you move into those age groups. It's going to be very difficult for you to recover from that um, and in fact, it's often a marker of uh, um, the, the beginning of the end for a lot of people when this happens. And this is like one of the last things you break it. My mother broke her hip when she was 87 years old, fell down a parking lot in the winter, tripped on ice. Two years later, she died. In those two years, she didn't leave the house. She didn't go outside for anything. She, she used to be very active. But after the fall, no more activity for her. And two years later, you lost her that's the sort of thing that happens. Uh, So so exercising, especially running, is excellent for maintaining bone strength. But if you're not a runner, if you're a cyclist, for example, or a rower or a swimmer, that's not gonna help your bone mass at all. That in that case, you need to be doing something along the lines of lifting weights. I use the word lifting weights, but you don't have to lift weights. Again, you could use your body weight or you get an elastic cord um, and use that as a way of re- form of resistance for exercise. So the point is, do not allow your body to uh, to lose muscle mass or to lose bone density. Those two things are critical to your health and longevity.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And um, especially for when we talk about bone health, especially in women, um, yeah. as they are postmenopausal and we lose uh, estrogen and it just... Of course, uh, wreaks havoc on our bone health, on, on bone health of women. Um, yeah. Now, when you're so when you're training older folks, how do you sort of relate to them all of this information without them being like, "Oh my God, I I I don't I don't want to do it. I'm scared. Get me out of here." You know what I mean?
1: I understand. I'm actually very fortunate. Um, People who come to me, have been active for a long time, usually years, perhaps even decades. When they come to me, um they know that I'm an older athlete myself and I know how to work with older athletes. So I get a lot of these older men and women looking me up and asking me to coach them. And so they already come to me with pretty much their life, the, the stuff I've been talking about so far, pretty much in line with where it should be. What they want is somebody who can kind of like help them become even better at their performance in their sport, like triathlon or whatever it may be. So I'm kind of unique. I've got lots of friends who coach uh, folks who are, who come to them just because they need to do things to get started, becoming more active. And they tell me stories about folks coming to them that, you know, are, are, had not been doing anything. And they've got to start from square one and begin to build this person's um, health and fitness health has got to come first if they're not healthy, there's no reason to work on fitness. So make sure they're healthy, which is all these things like bone health and et cetera. I've already talked about, make sure we got those things and then start working on their sport, which whatever it may be. And um, I know those coaches uh, do a great job because I I read about some of their clients eventually going on to do uh, triathlons and such. And sometimes even doing remarkable things like somebody when they're when they're in their seventies is really quite a remarkable achievement. Mm -hmm. And I've seen that happen because of, from people who've come to a coach without any background at all in the sport and wind up doing extremely well. So it's a, it's a fun occupation, but I I wind up getting kind of, I guess you'd say the cream of the crop of athletes that come to me and my, my friends and and, uh, fellow coaches wind up getting a lot of the coaches that are, a lot of the athletes who are relatively new to the sport.
0: Yeah, it's it, I mean the the thing that I like about certainly running it's very accessible. All you need is a pair of sneakers and you can kind of run anywhere, right? Now, when it comes to the biking and swimming, obviously you need a little bit more equipment there. So, what is if you can kind of talk to the accessibility of all of those components, and how anyone maybe with any budget might be able to to join in the fun?
1: Yeah, good question. Running is a place to start. If you've not been active and you want to take up a, one of the sports we're talking about, endurance sports, I would highly recommend running, but I wouldn't recommend starting if you're over 50. I wouldn't recommend starting by going for a run. I would recommend starting by going for a walk um you will still improve more than likely if you're over the age of 50 and you've not been active until that point your vo2 max aerobic capacities we started talking about a while ago are already in decline walking at that age will begin to boost your aerobic capacity it'll go up just because of walking brisk walking will do a lot for you Once you've got brisk walking going pretty well, this may take several weeks that you can really improve how fast you can go on a walk, how briskly you can walk. Then the idea is to start blending in very short runs along with your walk. So you go for a 30 minute walk and every three minutes you run for one minute and you keep something going like that throughout that workout. And this goes on for a couple of weeks, two or three weeks. then you decide to make it, let's make it a minute and a half of running. And then make it two minutes, three minutes, four minutes, and so forth. And eventually, over the course of time, your body adapts, and you're able to run the entire 30 minutes without stopping. But it takes time. But the remarkable thing is the human body is amazing. The human body will adapt to that stress no matter what age you are when you start. The human body will adapt to it. I've read studies on people uh, who are in their 90s who take up an activity like this and they adapt to it the same as college students do. They don't go as fast, but they, they start out very slow and eventually they, be, they become much faster than they were. And their rate of improvement is just the same as the college students' rate of improvement who are the control subjects in the studies. So you can improve, it. I don't care how old you are. I don't care if you're 93, it's okay. Start exercising now, start doing something, get out and go for a walk. Do what you can to make to to be active. Do not let age become your excuse. I hear people I'm, when I'm in a locker room at the gym. On the other side of the lockers, I'll hear some guy saying, "Gosh, I'm 40 years old now. I'm too old to be doing this stuff." 40 years old is still a kid. It's amazing. <laughs> you know, you're never too old. Just keep on doing it. Keep adding to all the things you can do, and you'll wind up being a much more healthy person. You'll have more health span in addition to your lifespan, and you'll be around for a long time as long as you're active. You quit being active, things go the other direction.
0: Absolutely. And how important is it for uh, endurance athletes, uh, whatever stage you're at, how important is it for them to have a coach or a coaching program?
1: Yeah. If you're not really sure what to do, I highly recommend getting a coach. Uh, coaches can are are they're trained in doing exactly what you need, which is to figure out how to help you become uh, more fit and more healthy. That's what the coach will do. If you're brand new to the sport, it's 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 kind of like you don't want to spend any money on it, and that's what, I can understand that. If you want to just start out by going for walks and occasional runs, blended in with, as I mentioned a while ago, you don't have to have a coach for that. You can probably do that. But let's say you decide, okay, now now I'm able to run for 20 to 30 minutes on my own. I've done this over time. It's taken me months, but now I can do it. Now, I want what I want to do is I want to run a 5K race. There's a 5K race in town. I would like to run that. This is a great time to get a coach. A coach will help you do it the right way. Um, it's not quite what you thought it's going to be. Uh, it's going to be a little bit different than that. You're going to be uh, excited about being in a, a crowd of who knows how many people, hundreds, perhaps even thousands, and for some races, if you're going to be in a large crowd, and there's going to be this motivation to go out really fast and burn up and wind up not finishing because of that, this is the sort of stuff a coach can help you with. It'll learn how to pace you so you get through the, through the event and make it a positive experience rather than a negative experience. Worst thing can happen is you enter the race and you fail to finish. That then raises the question, should I be even be doing this? And it causes people to decide to, to drop out if they've, been, they've made this long process of getting ready. So coach at that point is good. Up until then, just get started doing something. Running is an excellent place to start along with walking.
0: Yeah, and it sounds like the coach is more than just, here's a training program, here's this sheet of paper, but instead it's giving strategy, it's giving... Um, Uh, strengthening, you know, we spoke about how important weight training is or strengthening exercises, mobility exercises in between those runs. Am I wrong in that?
1: No, you're exactly right. That's exactly what the coach is going to do. The coach is going to deal with more than strictly telling you how many miles to run that day or whatever it Mm -hmm. may be. He or she is also going to talk to you about all the other stuff that goes into being a healthy athlete. And all the other stuff that's gonna help you finish that first 5k race you decide to do, or or whatever it may be. Coaches are, are amazingly agile. They've dealt with so many people in their careers of various abilities that they have a really good notion of what any athlete who comes, any person that comes to them really needs to get going.
0: And you know, you've had a long career of coaching. As you look back on some of the people that you've coached over the last couple of decades, uh, is there any that really stand out that maybe caused you to change your philosophy, change your method, change the way you think about triathlon or endurance uh, sports in general? Have you ever had that person or people? I, I or I you have probably that, had, had many. Per-
1: I've had that person that every person I've coached. Um, everybody you coach is unique. Everybody is different. And somehow you've got to deal with their differences um, in ways that, that fit, fit their needs. That's what a coach's job is, to do is: is to really figure out what does this particular person need, and how can I uh, meet that need. Um, and so I learned from all of them, but you know, everyone brings me something different. Um, I'm, I'm writing a book right now, in which I which there's ten chapters, and every chapter starts with an athlete I coached, and what I learned from that athlete. Uh, because you're, you're always learning from these other people in the sport besides yourself, you know, so there's, there's a lot to be learned. Uh, and they, they bring me all kinds of things to learn about. I learned about business. You know, I've, I've coached extremely, I, I once coached the 10th wealthiest man in the world. Um, he was a cyclist and uh, you know, and, and he's got a, he's got I won't name, the business, but he's got a, he's got a huge business, which everybody recognizes if I didn't said the name. And I was his coach for a couple of years. And, uh, you know, I learned a lot from him in, in lots of areas. One area was how he sees the world of business. That was interesting for me because I don't usually get involved in that. I'm usually involved in the world of athletics mm-hmm. and so forth. So it's all, everybody's got something unique that I learned from them and has made me not only a better coach, but a better person also.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I promise I did not know that when I asked you that question, that wasn't, that wasn't a setup. That was just a total coincidence that you happen to be writing a book based on that very question. Um, That's right. That's so funny. So, you know, as we start to kind of wrap things up, what, what advice would you give to an upcoming coach? Not so much someone going into endurance sports. I think we've covered that and what they need to know. But what advice would you give to a coach? I'm a physical therapist, right? Oftentimes we're seeing people after injury and sometimes even before injury. So what advice would you give to folks like me or potential coaches?
1: Yeah. Um, I just finished a project, a two and a half year project uh, on on, uh, on how to be a coach, basically. Uh, it's a multimedia project called The Craft of Coaching. Online and um, in that, the very first uh, module. There are 14 modules. The very first module I talk about what a coach should strive to be is good, successful, and happy. Those are the three elements that make up good coaching, make up successful coaching, make up happy coaching. Unfortunately, we don't typically, as coaches, learn that those that lesson until much later in our careers. We start off not being what I would call, let me back up. A good coach is somebody um, who sees the, the world from the from the client's perspective, from the athlete's perspective. That's a good coach. A good coach is not, is, is not only sympathetic, a good coach is also empathetic. A good coach knows how this person is feeling and reacting, and he wants he or she to coach needs to learn how to deal with those people because every person is unique and somehow you've got to learn how to how to deal with each one of them. And if you do that, you become a good coach. That means not lying to your, your athletes, not making things up. If they ask you a question, you don't know the answer, you say, I don't know. You don't make up something off the top of huge, your head, which is what most huge. coaches do. Yep. So it, it's, it's this long shopping list of things that make you a good coach. There are good examples of this. John Wooden, the basketball coach, from decades ago. He's probably the the, the goodest coach I've ever seen in my (laughs) entire career. He He exemplifies what being a good coach is. He's more concerned with his players, his basketball players at UCLA, than he was with winning national championships. But guess what? He won lots of national championships because he was interested in his clients. That's what a good coach does. You become very involved in helping your clients and doing everything you can to help them become better people. That's been a good coach. A successful coach is a coach who's now figured out a way to make business, make money on his business. You've got to be able to make this profitable. If you're not profitable, you're not gonna be in business. You're not gonna be able to help anybody at all. I used to help coaches get started back in the 90s. I had a business that helped coaches start their businesses, their coaching businesses. And that was one of the first things I I taught them is that you've got to become, you've got to learn how to become profitable. So that was the second thing, be a good coach. The third thing is, is to be happy. And I, what I found is if you have the first two, if you're a good coach and you're successful, you typically always are happy. I've never found one that had the first two and didn't have the third. So the first two kind of lead to the third one. And that makes for the, the best type of coach, somebody who's good, successful, and happy. And that, that really epitomizes what good coaching is all, what the best coaches are all about.
0: Right. Oh, that's great. And again, I had no idea that you're coming out with a multi-module course, The Craft of Coaching. It's like no, no. I'm, we're we're <laughs> definitely something's happening here. I don't know what it is. Um, good timing. Good timing. Um, and speaking of timing, and speaking of all the writing that you've done, so you have coming out very soon the fifth edition of the Training Bible. So talk a little bit about that book what's in the training Bible and, you know, uh, where people may be able to find that book when, once it's out.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah. It's it's my fifth edition of this book. I wrote the first, the first edition was written in 1997 and about, I don't know, every six or seven years, I update it to bring it up to date with everything that's going on in the world of sport. You know, the book basically is about how to, um, how to coach yourself. Um, if you decide you don't want to coach, which a lot of athletes do, a lot of athletes decide they really do their, they'd be better off coaching themselves. This tells you how to do it. It's kind of like a coach's, an athlete's guide to being their own coach is what it really is. It, it walks the athlete through the entire process. What does it take to coach yourself successfully? That book will be out uh, in January. And um, um, again, it's the fifth edition and so uh, I, I've brought it up to date over the years. If you go back to the first edition, if somebody happens to have the first edition around, you'll find no actually no nothing the same about the both first about the first two books about the first book and the fifth book. They are entirely different books because I've rewritten it so many times now that it just keeps growing because the sport is growing. The sport is growing by leaps and bounds. So that's that's the book that's coming out any day now.
0: Perfect, and people can find that at your website I'm assuming JoeFrieltraining.com. Yeah,
1: JoeFreeltraining.com. That's right.
0: Perfect. And okay, so if people want to find out more about you, and, and by the way, this is not the only book that you can get on the website. There's all there's a, a huge inventory of, uh, information, videos, training programs. So I highly suggest, uh, checking out Joe's website. And as we finish, I have one question. It's something that I ask everyone and that's knowing where you are now in your life and career, what advice would you give to your 20 year old self?
1: (laughs) I was a coach when I was in my twenties, I was coaching high school. And uh, looking back, I can think of all the errors I made. You know, I just had a dinner the other night with some folks who are also coaches, and we were all talking about the things we would apologize for if we had the opportunity to do it. And there are—it was a long list of things. By the time we all got done, um, so I, I would—I would tell myself to to relax a little bit around athletes, and you don't have to be the boss. You can let them be the boss and just just listen to what they have to say. I didn't do that when I first started coaching. I really wasn't a good coach. I, I didn't consider myself good at all, at least by today's standards. But I was doing it the way we did it back then, the 1970s. Uh, it was a different world in the way coaches operated. We were very um, autocratic. Uh, now it's much more in- inclusive, the way we coach. And I would have talked to myself about being more that way, being more inclusive of my athlete's input instead of being just my mm. input.
0: Oh, that is great advice. Um, Well, Joe, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. This is a great conversation. Um, Again, people can find out more about you, your books, that fifth edition of the Training Bible at joefrieltraining.com. We will have links to everything. So regardless of where you're listening to this or if you're watching it on YouTube, go down into the show notes section. We'll have links, one click will take you everywhere. Joe, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate this conversation.
1: Glad to have done it, Karen. Thank you very much.
0: You're welcome. And everyone, thanks so much for listening. Have a great couple of days and stay healthy, wealthy, and smart. Thanks for listening. And don't forget to leave us your questions and comments at podcast.healthywealthysmart.com.